the title of my sermon today is The Supremacy of Love. Uh, and if that's true, this sermon should be easy listening for a world that loves love, a world that is in love with love, a world in which love is, along with tolerance and equality, an unassailable and unimpeachable virtue, a trump card that trumps all other arguments and philosophies. So hopefully this should be an easy listening sermon. Let's find out. Our text today from 1 Corinthians 13 is one of the most famous texts in the Bible. And we are familiar, probably we're familiar with the text, possibly even over-familiar with the text, from weddings. Although the choice of this text for weddings is not inappropriate, indeed it is very appropriate, nevertheless it has become something of a cliché as a wedding text. I'm not exactly sure, but I would guess that this text has been chosen as, its, as the wedding text for roughly half of the, the wedding services that I have conducted. Now, the nature of love is a popular topic for weddings, and that's not unreasonable. Scripture affirms that love and marriage go together like a horse and carriage although not precisely in those words. The most reverend Michael Curry, when he preached for 13 minutes at the wedding of Harry Windsor and Meghan Markle, he did not mention marriage once. Not once. But he used the word love 65 times, by my own count. That's once every 12 seconds. Coming back down to earth, <laughs> closer to home, love, true love, will follow you forever, preaches the bishop at the marriage of Prince Humperdinck and Buttercup in The Princess Bride. It is easy, and probably more importantly, it is safe to make marriage, a marriage service a celebration of love. But what is love? What on earth is love? And what is this discussion of love doing in a discourse on spiritual gifts? What is love? Well, in our culture, love is a feeling. It is a warm and fluffy and comfortable feeling. Love, in the English language, is at the end of the like spectrum. When you really, 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 really like something to the point where the word like is no longer adequate, then you love it. As Bianca helpfully explains to her friend Chastity in Ten Things I Hate About You, Yep, she says, see there's a difference between like and love, because I like my sketches, but I love my Prada backpack. Chastity replied, but I love my sketches, to which Bianca helpfully explains, that's because you don't have a Prada backpack. Well, as Christians, we're quick in our rebuttal to this idea that love is a feeling. Love, to quote the Christian, the Christian pop group DC Talk, love is a verb. 
In other words, it's an action. Love is a doing word. Love is any action that is meaningfully self-sacrificial for the welfare of another. But is that right? Well, let's listen to Paul. Our text today, as I said, comes in the middle of a part of his letter to the church in Corinth that deals with gifts of the Holy Spirit. And as will become clear when, hopefully, by God's grace, next week we get to chapter 14, the Christians in Corinth actually know quite a bit about the gifts of the Holy Spirit, and perhaps they might even know a great deal more about moving in the power of the Spirit than vast numbers of Christians do today. But Paul, nevertheless, opens this section of his letter by saying that he does not want them to be uninformed or indeed ignorant of spiritual things. Paul sees that there is a corrective that's necessary, a corrective to what's happening in Corinth, a corrective to their approach. And Paul supplies, in response to what's happening in that church, he supplies seven lessons that we're working through. Firstly, God speaks. You ought to know that. Secondly, different gifts, but the same spirit. Thirdly, there's a variety of gifts, but they're distributed for the common good. Last week, Mike talked to us about the body of Christ, in which there is a variety of gifts, but for mutual interdependence. Then today, we come to lesson number five, the the supremacy of love in ministry of any kind. And next week and the week after, the nature and place of unintelligible and intelligible spirit-inspired utterance, followed by the nature and necessity of order in spirit-led worship. And from what Paul says in chapter 14, we do indeed get the impression that this group of Christians had perhaps an inflated view of the worthiness of the gift of tongues. It's very unintelligibility, perhaps somehow being evidence of super-spirituality, otherworldliness. Conversely, they may have had a diminished view of the gift of prophecy, It's very usefulness, making it perhaps ordinary and mundane in comparison. But having in uh, chapter 12 already mentioned the legitimacy of, of these and many other gifts of the Holy Spirit, Paul introduces something of a digression in his teaching, verse 31 of chapter 12, and yet I will now show you the most excellent way. You see, if I speak in the tongues of men or of angels, but do not have love, I'm only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have a faith that can move mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and give over my body to hardship that I may boast, but do not have love, I gain nothing. The the, the message with respect to the gifts of the Holy Spirit is that without love, actually, the gifts are useless. This message of Paul begs a definition of love because what Paul is talking about seems to defy a simple classification of love being either a noun, a feeling, or a verb, an action. 
For example, if, as DC Talk, the pop group, claim love is a verb, then the retort to Paul would be, no, giving all that I possess to the poor, that is loving, inherently. That is love. But Paul's understanding of love is that a loving action can actually be in vain if not accompanied by love. So what is love? Well, love is patient, love is kind, it does not envy, it does not boast, it is not proud, it does not dishonor others, it is not self-seeking, it is not easily angered, it keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails. Well, so there's 16 characteristics of love. Two things that love is. Love is patient. Love is kind. Eight things that love isn't. Love isn't envious, boastful, arrogant, rude, self-seeking, irritable, record-keeping, or rejoicing in wrongdoing. Five things that love always does. Love, literally, rejoices in the truth, bears everything, believes everything, hopes everything, endures everything. One thing love never does, love never fails. So then, to some degree, love might be easily recognized, but it is not so readily defined. So then if my question today is, what is love? Then an initial answer would be, love actually is not easily defined. Love would seem to include an element of internal motive. In giving away all to the poor, the internal motivation must be right, not boasting, not self-aggrandizement, not hypocritical. But it is also certainly, love is also certainly an action to love the poor in terms of empathy and sympathy and good intentions is not enough, but rather we need to actually do something to help them, otherwise it would not be loving. Love might be indeed a feeling. Uncomfortable with evil, thrilled with truth. Love might be a strong feeling. But conversely, love might be the decision, irrespective of motive, and counter all feelings, to do the opposite of what we feel. Love is not throttling the living daylights out of someone who desperately needs it. For patience is not really patience until we've come to that point where we cry out internally for some extra strength. Love will be seen in actions, holding one's tongue, forgiving and forgetting. But conversely, love would also appear to be a settled conviction, an orientation of heart, a, 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 a learnt habit of other person focusedness something that is decided upon, but also something that is practiced and practiced and practiced until it becomes, hopefully, indeed, perhaps, almost 
even natural. A human character fully matured. Verse 8, But where there are prophecies, they will cease. Where there are tongues, they will be stilled. Where there is knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part, but when completeness comes, what is in part disappears. When I was a child, I talked like a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I put the ways of childhood behind me. Um, Astonishingly, when we come to church, we are playing the game of heaven. The gifts of the Holy Spirit are not the final reality. They point to things that we'll know at the perfection of all things, at the maturation of all things when Jesus returns. Things which at present we know but childishly. Things which we can't yet know fully. I I remember um, some um, examples of I remember a little bit of what it was like to be a child and to think childishly about things from time to time when I was about six or seven, staying with a family friend on on a farm in the morning. Um, uh, um, As I wandered into the kitchen, probably thumb in my mouth, she asked me how I slept. And I told her that during the night, a wombat had entered the room and gotten onto my bed. I remember the feeling of indignation I felt when she burst into laughter. For some reason, I was quite sure that there had been a wombat on my bed. But thinking about it now, probably there wasn't. A few years later, actually, when childhood friends of mine explained to me the facts of life, all about the birds and the bees, in hushed tones, my very first question was, do you have to go to hospital to do that? (laughs) It seems to me that sex was a very risky procedure. People could get hurt, arms and legs everywhere. Goodness, you obviously wouldn't want to do that without close medical supervision. (laughs) After all, babies were born in hospitals, so why not the other thing? Yes, yes, well, we can laugh now. But have we actually understood that now we're, we're in a childhood of sorts. Now we're only playing at worship. Such will be the reality of it at the fulfillment of all things. We'll look back and go, oh my goodness. For now we see only a reflection as in the mirror. Then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part. Then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. Now these three remain. Faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. Perhaps this text is considered so appropriate for weddings because in addition to its content, it being all about love, there's the style of the thing. Uh, I mean, it's poetical, isn't it? It is prose, but it is beautiful, evocative prose. And that's not unusual for Paul. And it's also not unusual that in his evocative prose, following his point can perhaps not be that simple. It can be difficult to understand sometimes. But if we keep on focusing on the question, what is love? Or perhaps now, what is this that Paul's just said? What has this got to do with love? 
then Paul seems to be gently leading us in a particular direction. Love is about knowing, even as we are fully known. Knowing whom? Well, it's actually about knowing God, isn't it? Um, what Paul is saying here, I think John spells out for us elsewhere when he says, Dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God, because God is love. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love. Not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we ought also to love one another. God is love. What is love? God is. Is love hard to define? Yes. Love evades and resists tight definitions, especially abstracted and technical definitions of the sort so beloved by cultural Westerners, because actually love is a relational concept. You experience it. You copy it. You know it when you know Jesus. And then it is practiced. It is a mature human character conformed to the image and likeness of God as seen most perfectly and fully in Jesus, his Son, empowered by the Spirit of God, the Spirit of Christ, the Holy Spirit. God is love. And this is how God exhibits and displays love, Jesus. Most perfectly and gloriously, Jesus on a cross. That's love. Follow him. Love is actually bigger than nouns and verbs, motives and actions. God is love. But before we move on, God is love. Before we move on, please allow me to warn you just briefly of a false teaching commonly associated with this text. It's a false teaching I've heard many times and occasionally even from pulpits. It goes like this. God is love. Is, the verb there, is the functional equivalent of an equal sign. So we can insert an equal sign. Therefore, God equals love. And an equal sign is a sign of exact equivalence. So we can reverse the terms. So if God equals love, then also love equals God. And therefore, wherever there is love, there is God. And whatever is loving is God, etc., etc., etc. I've heard a priest at a funeral tell the congregation that every single one of them were believers in God because every single one of them believes in love and they've all experienced love and therefore, QED, they all believe in God. That argument is, of course, absolute nonsense. It also allows, this, uh, this mathematical procedure allows human beings to define and redefine who God is based on their own figurings as to what love is. According to Bianca Stratford, God is a Prada backpack. And likewise, 
All kinds of things might be reconfigured as godly because from our human point of view, they are loving or expressions of feelings of love as we have conceived it. But this is, of course, just idolatry, vicious and plain. Idolatry, us making God in our own image in order that we might thereafter justify ourselves in the pursuit of the desires of our own hearts. But the solution is, of course, to allow God to be God and to allow God to present himself as he wants to, finally and perfectly in Jesus of Nazareth, and us in submission to him, allow ourselves to be conformed to his likeness in the power of the Spirit. So we've answered the question, what is love, with the answer, Jesus is. Now, before we are done, returning to 1 Corinthians 13, what is Paul's reasoning for placing this great exploration of love into the middle of a discussion about spiritual things? Let's see how it clarifies and illustrates Paul's argument. Um, As as Mike taught us last week, uh, Paul has already told us that the manifestation of the Spirit is given to each one, for the common good. And then, using anatomy, using the human body as a metaphor for the church, Paul eliminated two possible scenarios, things that might happen at church. Scenario one is that seeing what God is doing through another person, we might reason that because the Holy Spirit is not doing that through me, I don't belong. The foot cannot say, because I'm not a hand, I do not belong. Nor can the ear say, because I am not an eye, I do not belong. Envy is excluded and pushed out by love. Love does not envy. I guess, indeed, if you were a foot, um, to play with Paul's metaphor a bit, the astonishing dexterity of the hand would be breathtaking if you were a foot, because after all, we have opposable thumbs, but no opposable big toes. Envy is excluded. Love does not envy. But admiration can be an expression of love. The second scenario that Paul provides is that of seeing what God is doing through us And reasoning that because the Holy Spirit is not doing that same thing through others, they don't belong. So then, therefore, contempt is excluded. Love is not boastful, proud, or dishonoring of others. The eye cannot say to the hand, I don't need you. And the head cannot say to the feet, I don't need you. Paul teaches us explicitly that it is the Holy Spirit's will to draw distinctions among us, such that, indeed, some might have gifts that draw widespread notice and others that likewise don't. And when we come, we should remember that, indeed, God has made us brothers and sisters in Christ. And what do brothers and sisters most naturally do? Fight. (laughs) Exactly. 
They are rivals. So then, likewise, in churches, we tend to rejoice with those who mourn and mourn with those who rejoice. For, you see, when others do well and prosper and advance, it feeds our own insecurity. She's making me look bad, we think. And likewise, when others fail or flounder, we tend to rejoice, taking the opportunity to think well of ourselves who are doing well. We might laugh at such things, at the childishness of such things, or indeed, we might indeed perhaps find painful recognition in it all, but these things are powerful and destructive forces at work in the world and in the church. Now, with God there is no favoritism, but nevertheless, he reserves the right to make diverse and multiple distinctions among us with respect to gifts of circumstance, gifts of natural ability, and gifts of the Holy Spirit. It is often observed that we should avoid comparing ourselves to others, and that is very true. But perhaps we might actually now allow a caveat. Perhaps we might say, actually, it's fine to compare ourselves with others insofar as we are grown-ups, insofar as we are now mature, we can compare ourselves with others, but with sober judgment and with faith, knowing that there is no favoritism with God. If we do make comparisons, then let's be careful to mark and reject both envious and contemptuous thoughts in order that we might reject them, but likewise be filled with loving admiration for those who are astonishingly gifted in ways that I can barely imagine. More than that, how do we actually get love? Well, when I first became a Christian... And um, in situations where I was confronted with someone who was difficult or challenging, I, I can remember I would occasionally pray, Dear Jesus, please give me love for this person. And that's a prayer I have never known to fail. I have failed many, many, many times to pray it. But it is not a prayer that Jesus has ever failed to answer in my experience, he always provides strength, not only actually to change my feelings, but also to give me strength, perhaps to show patience to someone who was trying, or trying to be trying. Preparing me, pre me preparing this sermon has reminded me that perhaps I should start praying that again. Dear Jesus, please help me to love. More recently, I believe, the Lord has been showing me that authentic ministry is often incredibly inconvenient. In other words, if something feels incredibly inconvenient, then perhaps I should stop and discern, pray and ask. Otherwise, I might miss an opportunity to be loving, and in missing an opportunity to be loving, actually be unloving. Because ministry is often incredibly inconvenient. That's just two thoughts on my own journey as Jesus continues uh, to work on me uh, so as to make me, hopefully, unnaturally loving. Just like him. What is love? Not necessarily an easy question to answer, but we know it when we see him. What is this ode to love doing in an extended discourse on the gifts of the Holy Spirit? Well, in a nutshell, 
the Corinthian church thought that the hallmark of authentic Christian spirituality, the sign that you'd arrived, was the gift of tongues. Ecstatic, esoteric praise and worship. Paul's corrective is gentle but clear. The hallmark of authentic, mature, grown-up Christian spirituality is this, faith, hope, and love. And the greatest of these is love. As we eagerly desire the spiritual gifts, what we really need to focus on is love. And the Lord be with you.